Um, welcome to the next episode of Eldritch Girl, and I've got Megan Cubed with me. Uh, Megan, would you like to introduce yourself? I would. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. Um, I am a what I call a monstrous romance writer. I began writing horror fiction and weird tale about 10 years ago, and meandered my way into um, media criticism and reviews and such. It's mostly like comics and visual media. Um, outside of that, I am a published novelist. Uh, I write short stories. I write essays and primarily known for um, the Southern Gothic series, which is my little ode to monster hunting fiction and queer romance and all that good stuff. So That's how I know you also from that series. <laughs> <laughs> That's how most people know me. <laughs> and you're going to read an extract from the first book, Leather yes. and Lace? Yeah, so Leather and Lace, actually, uh, the book is the novelization of uh, a short story of the same name, which was originally published in 2018 by, of all places, uh, Image Comics. It was an uh, anthology of like romance, prose, and comics, and it was a huge like international group of people who got together and told like this very offbeat romance fiction in different sort of like subgenres, from like historical to horror to you know contemporary and like more YA type stuff. So my story is <clears throat> excuse me was originally in the uh, first issue issue, which was you know horror themed, so that was pretty good. The novelization came out uh, February of this year, uh, right in time for Valentine's Day. Follows uh, the main character, uh, Dorian, who is an unlucky vampire from the slums of Devil's Row. Uh, He makes ends meet working in sleazy bars and nightclubs, doing survival sex work, you know, under the, I guess, watchful eye of the local vampire mafia. (laughs) He meets a human, uh, a monster hunter named Cash Leroy. During a you know vampire bar fight at Dorian's job, <laughs> where he uh, saves Cash's life from a particularly nasty brutish vampire who'd been uh, hunting humans, and uh, basically upends his whole life <laughs> in doing so. So Cash, who is indebted to Dorian for you know saving his life and everything, and you know putting everything on the line, uh, agrees to take Dorian under his wing to uh, train as a monster hunter, and you know kind of like you know help him you know, now that he's kind of out <laughs> on the outs in, in the vampire world, like at least, you know, he can start over in the human world as a, as a monster hunter. So they become partners and best friends. But unfortunately, this is a romance. So everyone catches feelings quite quickly. And that just kind of uh, complicates things as uh, monster hunting is kind of a nasty, brutish and short <laughs> career. And, you know, all of the the, the emotional uh, and, and romantic plot kind of has to take a backseat when a uh, particularly like nasty case lands in their laps a pair of man-eating were deer on the loose in town uh stealing hearts and so with pressure on to end it uh they have to set aside their feelings and track down a pair of very nasty were deer so amazing okay all that good stuff (laughs) yeah (laughs) but uh yeah so that's pretty much the setup of the book um and i'm going to be reading the first chapter just you know, which I think is like a very good intro to the world. I, if I go for it, I'm not an I'm like I'm not an excellent public speaker, so we'll give it a shot. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Everyone's yeah. very forgiving. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Carl Dreschner wanted to scream as he ran for his life from the charging beast, but he knew that there was no use in it. 
No one was around to hear him as he raced down the winding footpaths of Robert P. Chastain Park. This late at night, the Devereux Police Department squad car that lingered in the parking lot to chase off loitering teenagers was already gone. The lamps that dotted the footpath didn't stay on past closing once the groundskeepers left, casting the entire park in deep pools of shadow. Around him, some shrubs and trees made it hard to see where he was going, tripping as he went or snagged by branches. Above Carl, there was moonlight. Behind him, the sound of hooves beating the dirt. The trees shook as the creature ran behind him, following Carl's frantic breathing. He didn't get a good look at it when it appeared outside the Werner family packing plant. It was standing there in the farthest corner of the parking lot that faced the northeast Pascal Boulevard. Carl had just left his shift for the night when he saw it stand up from a crouch between two cars on two legs. All Carl knew was that the moonlight bathed its shaggy fur and head of antlers in what looked like silver ribbons. Then the creature charged at him. Carl ran and never looked back. A sound of a thick branch snapping caught Carl by his frayed nerves. He turned to look behind him as a massive silhouette barreled down the footpath. Carl didn't turn in time to see the creature in front of him emerge from the brush. Their bodies connected in the sudden violent impact of a soft human hitting a slab of dense muscle and fur. Carl stumbled back and hit the sidewalk, his head spinning and lungs burning for oxygen. He blinked, and when his vision cleared, he saw it. The stag appeared with the body of a muscle-bound human and a deer's narrow, black-eyed face. It towered overhead in seven feet of brown fur, black hooves, and a gnarled spread of bony antlers. Before Carl could scream, the creature picked him up by the throat. He wheezed, vision growing hazy and dark as it squeezed the breath from his aching lungs. Death didn't wait long for Carl as the other stag charged at him from behind. The creature had pursued him was much larger than the one before him, a lumbering giant with a head of massive antlers protruding in sharpened points. The antlers pierced through Carl, breaking his ribcage and tearing through his lungs. He died a violent death listening to his own bone shatter. Once Carl Dreschner's heart stopped beating, the beast who crushed his throat used the other's antlers to steady his body. The stag tore into his chest, peeling back the skin and bone to take his heart. Holding the organ up in a meaty paw, the creature licked its mouth with its long black tongue. Carl's body leapt to the dirt. The stags, one large, one short, underwent their transformation back into their human forms. Their antlers receded into round human skulls. Their dense speckled fur shed to reveal their vulnerable skin underneath. The men the stags hid inside of stood naked and bloody under the moonlight. They were middle-aged men with gray hairs at their temples and in their mustaches, crow's feet gathered in the corners of their eyes. One was tall, black, and sturdily built. The other was short, white, and round. Just his heart? asked the taller of the two men. His name was Paul W. Garrett. Flecks of muscle and bone clung to his coarse gray hair where his antlers had receded into his skull. He swallowed, feeling queasy. No, the shorter and rounder of the two, named Matthew Lane, smirked under his mustache. I want all of it. Tonight, the were-deer feasted. Oh, I do like that chapter. <laughs> it's such a good intro. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of your world building, because there's such a lot going on in that opening section. So like, what are the dynamics of monsters living alongside humans? Um, and what are the main conflicts that you wanted to play with about that? Um, well, in this world, um, monsters basically have been living incognito, I guess you could say, among humans for a few, you know, hundred to a thousand years, depending on where they are in the world. You know, monsters are um, 
basically evolutionary offshoots of, of humans. So they ran parallel to humans and are um, naturally occurring in the world. So in, in this world, you know, monsters lived in the, lived on in the, in the natural world in, in trees and caves and forests and, and the plains and all these places, you know, and mountains until humanity started to encroach like, you know, upon them. So more, in, you know, indigenous cultures had more of an understanding of, of, a, of a relationship with monsters, while those who, you know, tend to empire build would rather just sort of pave over the top of them or, or kill them outright. So over the course of history, monsters have either like been killed because of, you know, violent skirmishes with human killing livestock or eating children or, you know, all those sort of like nasty things that happen when they sort of bump up against each other and don't know what to do or have been slowly sort of folded into human society. So there's basically three kinds of monsters in this world, uh, only two of which that we we do see in this book. Um, you have shapeshifters like, you know, Paul and Matthew um, who are able to shift between um, a fully human form, a sort of hybrid form, like the the, the man stag, and then like a, a full animal. Um, they're able to completely blend in and live normal human lives and pay taxes and all that stuff and more or less navigate without any problems. Um, and then you have vampires and, and other what they call like deadlocked monsters, which are totally locked into their forms. They can't shift. So while they're more humanoid, you know, um than say like a bigfoot or like a mermaid which are like more like cryptids you know and uh can't speak can't communicate with us can't blend in they are human enough to sort of pass but have to like hide their appearance and kind of just hide in plain sight so these two classes kind of clash amongst themselves you know because you have one that you know the shifters who are very good at like assimilation and hiding and like copying humans and, and living among them then you have those like vampires who are kind of struggling for their freedom kind of like living under humans and you know obviously they it was either fold into human society or die you know so they those who survived you know made the choice yeah so it's it's forced assimilation it's not like these were not like happy times you know so yeah. you have monsters like i said kind of like living incognito and the rules basically keep your head down pay into human economies, you know, property, food, whatever way that you can, taxes if you're like a shapeshifter and all that good stuff and you can have a job. But, you know, keep your head down. Don't do anything to bring attention to yourself and do not kill. Do not attack humans, do not kill humans. That's like the rule. Those who step outside of that rule, those who like attack humans, those who draw any attention to themselves, that becomes the the business of monster hunters who are a class of laborers, basically, who are, you know, brought in by human governments, local law enforcement, whatever, to, you know, just handle the nasty stuff uh, of dealing with monsters because human governments don't want to deal with it. They don't want to, they don't want them in prisons. They don't want them, they don't want them to have rights. They don't want anything. It's just, as, you know, as long as they keep their heads down, it's fine. If they act up, whatever, a hunter's called in to take care of it. It's swift, ugly you know, brutal justice <laughs> and yeah. monsters. Yeah. Monsters are essentially just like, they know they have no rights. They know that they, there's no, there's no due process. You know, if you step out of line, you're dead. But um, it, most of the conflict is between the relationships in this series and in the book specifically between monsters and hunters, because hunters are like a, a discrete 
class that are like on the fringes of society. You know, they're basically stateless. They simply exist to kill monsters and police them, basically. On the other hand, when monsters can't police their own or someone is drawing attention to them or like violating a social contract in some sort of way, like monsters will also call in hunters to deal with those that they don't want to deal with themselves. You know, sometimes it's just easier to sort of like pass the buck onto someone and, you know, wash your hands of uh, a community member who's causing a problem or, you know, doing nasty things that will, you know, brings attention back to the community. So um, the, the conflict is mostly between, you know, hunters who, you know, know that they're <laughs> hitmen, basically, you know, um, that they're operating outside of the law and have to do very nasty, ugly things under the guise of keeping humans safe when it's mostly just to avoid paperwork and bureaucracy for human governments and police and all that. Yeah. And, and then monsters who understand that like the cost of, of not of not dying is you know behaving essentially living up to this human contract that's forced on them and you know navigating that relationship where they don't necessarily fear hunters they don't like them they're just sort of a part of the everyday life you know and in that negotiation of like hunters who are like marginalized and maligned in human society and monsters who are completely at the bottom of, <laughs> of any social hierarchy, you yeah. know, uh, because they, they have nothing, you know? Yep. And so, so that, that, that the conflict is, is sort of like negotiating, like what is justice? What is fair? How do you sleep at night? <laughs> you know, how do yeah. you, how do you navigate any of this? You know, that's kind of the core, um, conflicts between humans and monsters in, in this world that's really cool like and what drew you to southern gothic as a vehicle for storytelling then so as opposed to like um uh, another kind of spec fit kind of genre i think it lends itself quite well to the darker themes of those sorts of struggles and things like that so what what is it about southern gothic for you that made you think like oh yeah this is kind of the aesthetic i want this is the the genre that i want to use um was that a deliberate thing or did you just kind of organically happen for you well um it uh, it kind of i've always been intrigued by like monster hunting fiction um and like you know in america where i live it they've always kind of like paid lip service to like the ideas of southern gothic i think in in a lot of ways there's a lot of like the aesthetics of like life on the fringes and like the dilapidated American town and dealing with the, you know, the scars of industrialization and economic exploitation and racism and the fallout of the American civil war and a lot of these other things, you know, there's this, it's a very, it's a very common thing to sort of paint hunters as bad men who do bad things. And where's the aesthetics of like the lowbrow salt of the earth you know, laborer kind of like as, like as a costume, you know, they drive fast cars, you know, they live in these dark, dreary towns. They're sort of like gesturing at the lack of, or I should say like the, the death of infrastructure in the American South and, and poverty and class disparity. And they sort of like gesture towards these things and it's all it's fine, you know, but it doesn't like really mean, meaningfully 
like engaged in that sort of like the, the, the trap of like generational poverty and he said stories in mining towns, but I'll actually explain what a mining town is and how people got there and why things are the way they are and how you could have people living amongst monsters. And the guy running your town is essentially a monster. Like what's the big, <laughs> what's the big difference? But um, I, yeah, I, I've always been very interested in like telling stories of, about sort of like the lived reality of the American South. Like I'm from Texas originally, which is more like Southwest. It's a little further removed from a lot of these sort of places, but like a lot of my family come from the places that these kind of stories are set and the kind of cultures that are being like gestured at. And I've always been very interested in like getting that perspective from someone who is familiar with that kind of life and understands, yeah, instead of like poverty tourism, like actually giving dignity to people who live in these conditions and talking about those conditions. No, I was just gonna I was just gonna say, like, I think it's really interesting how you engage with the American class system, if you like, the US class system, which is very different to a British or European conception of class. I like how your work seems to be quite socially conscious as well and kind of digs into those sorts of things and then like puts monsters and monster hunters within that context and deals with it within that way. Is that something that, again, is that something that you did deliberately? Is that something that you found yourself drawn to because of the the particular themes and the, the that it just sort of lent itself to that? Yeah, it, it did. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I like kind of ran to it because um, like I, I come from a working class background. It didn't make sense to me to have hunters be some just cool guy who does cool things and is like, has no engagement with like his material conditions or anything like that. So, you know, in, in the case of like, you know, cash and everything, you know, he's the human character. His family is split. You know, his mother's family comes from Mexico. They're a, like a, a monster hunting dynasty, essentially. They've been doing this for generations. His father's family comes from the bayou of Louisiana. Both sides of his family are very like low working class. They kind of just met in Texas. He grew up there. Um, but, you know, he's he's an Mexican-American. You know, he has a French name, but so do a lot of people. Dorian is a vampire. He has a French name. His family is not, you know, they just sort of ended up with the name. Um, a lot of vampires and, and monsters just sort of end up with the names that are like, it's that mishmash, at least in the region of, of the world that this story takes place, it's a mishmash of like Spanish and French and Creole. You know, it's all just this melting pot and monsters just don't, they don't get to choose their names. It's just name they, they end up with. They learn English and bits of Spanish and bits about the things and that just becomes the identity that they construct, but they have no they have no relationship to human colonialism. They don't know where any of this comes from. It's just handed to them and they have to take it, you know. And then in Cash's case, he is between two worlds. Father was what they call a civilian. His mother is a monster hunter. He's Mexican-American. You know, he's subject to a lot of different tensions. And then on top of that, he's a monster hunter. He doesn't make a lot of money. It's a dangerous, stupid job. And they don't live very long. So it's kind of like, you know, there is no... Even though he is basically part of like a fantasy class, because monster hunters aren't real. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And they have and they have their own like insular culture and values and and history and laws and all that stuff. But like, you know, he still can't divorce himself from the reality of being a, a gay Mexican American kid from Texas. I guess it's just sort of like honoring the things that I, I've seen and the people that I've met in my life uh, who I know have very similar sort of like class backgrounds and 
relationships with structures of power and like race and all that stuff and yeah kind of be because conscious the, of that it, yeah and the main story is not about that it's about him killing monsters right so <laughs> yeah exactly so like, there's, only, there's yeah. only so much i can get into when it's like you know i can't we can't have like the you know this, this is not an authentic story about uh, a man's trials and tribulations he does kill monsters for a living and yeah. he hangs out with a vampire so you know like we can only go so far <laughs> Um, Dorian and Cash's uh, relationship is a really interesting one and like you've got that I don't know it's not exactly slow burn is it <laughs> like it, it, they do have a foundational friendship though to start off with don't mm-hmm. they like they, they kind of does they, they grow in each other I guess but it's like um, that healthier kind of couple um, as opposed to the gothic horror couple where it's all very toxic and mm-hmm. you know you could easily have gone that way i think with those sorts of dynamics like a monster hunter and a vampire like and you've got potential power dynamics and power imbalances at play considering where monsters are in the whole uh, social structure um so like you've got those elements to play with and i think it's it's really interesting that you've got this they've got like such a nice relationship <laughs> like it like a relatively much healthier one so is that again something that you wanted to do on purpose because you wanted it to be like a um like a like a healthy romance within that yeah it's it's kind of like a weird route how i got how i got here um yeah. because like i said the, the the whole thing was originally based on like a, a short story you know yes and yeah yeah it was it was just like a fun little snapshot and it wasn't particularly developed but they always had that like fun best friends sort of like buddy cop sort of relationship you know from you know because like the the crux of their whole thing is that like they hang out at like karaoke bars when they're not at work yeah and they hang out, yeah they hang out at karaoke bars and they hang out at diners and they go eat at like food trucks and they just they just hang out and they just banter constantly because cash is very like like he's just like a very calm, laid back, relaxed, sort of flirty character, and Dorian is completely anxiety ridden. <laughs> yeah, know? and he's very smarmy and he's very mouthy, and they, they just they just make fun of each other constantly. But it's always very good natured, sort of like you know bickering. That was always sort of like the foundation that I always had in mind, even like when the first the short story first came out. Um, I stumbled into the sort of like web of class and power and, you know, the hierarchies and and all that, like as I was developing the world and shifting from like the short story, because I originally wrote like a a ton of short stories, but then I was like, there's so much more here and I can't get to it with just some like fun short stories. So from there I shifted gears into creating like the, you know, Southern Gothic universe, you know, (laughs) and like, I still wanted them to have that very, like, fun, flirty, casual, and, like, complimentary sort of, like, dynamic. Um, it just m- morphed into this other thing because they are an interspecies, like, paranormal romance, you know, a human and a vampire. It's just that, like, that's not the problem, you know? Like, vampires and humans have, like, kind of a, or I should say vampires and hunters have a like okay sort of relationship like mostly vampires just don't like them very much but they understand their function and but they're like whatever you know they're ambivalent and the relationship between vampires and humans is that they like do hate and fear them like so much so that like 
like vampire religion is basically like an apocalyptic cult. They've like they've created this mythos where the first vampire was like murdered by by humanity and he was like returned to the great you know goddess's womb to be reborn again and then smite the humans and once he comes back and destroys all the humans they will finally take their place as like the rightful heirs of of this planet so they like they see themselves as like stewards of the earth and you know (laughs) you know yeah rightful life forms you know and humans are just these nasty things that have got the upper hand on them and will someday someday be destroyed so you know they are fearful of them when you know vampires live in these like slums and are far away from humans under the rule of either like the vampire mob which is the in dorian's case that's the power structure that controls where he lives or other parts of the world where it's like a vampire monarchy they're they're taught to just if they see a human to just like close up shop lock your doors close the windows don't talk to them they wear sunglasses and hats and they cover their eyes and they cover their ears because they have like long pointed ears. They're very like Nosferatu-y <laughs> in that respect, yeah. you know, you know, they, they cover themselves and they don't talk to humans and they tend to like decorate their shops in, in like, like their regional vampire languages that humans don't, don't even know. The, the relationship is kind of ambivalent. It's not like, you know, it's not a tortured, I can't possibly love a human or I can't possibly love a vampire. It's just like, these are, they're sort of just, tossed into this soup that they don't understand but that's just the world that they live in so you know the 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 tension between them as a human and a vampire is more of like the emotional and internal struggles that they have together and separately uh than some sort of like animosity between humans or vampires and in dorian's case like his the thing that drives him is his fear of abandonment because you know um, vampire families are subject to just intense poverty. And in his case, you know, he had a single mother who raised him and his uh, older sister. He doesn't really know who his dad was. His dad kind of came and went until he was six years old and his dad disappeared. His mom just said that he dad had gambling debts and dipped out. He's like, okay. You know, his sister, who is kind of uh, resentful of, of their mother for never really being there for them doesn't want to grow up and, and just become a, do that to her own children, you know, leaves when she's like 17 and leaves Dorian alone with his mother. And then, you know, one day he comes home to find all the doors, lo- all the doors locked and the locks change. And then his mother's just gone. And then he's like on his own. So his whole life has just been people slowly leaving him and him never knowing why, um, which is <sighs> unfortunately, yeah. Which is sort of like the unfortunate reality of you know again like as someone who's kind of lived in or around some very like crushing conditions that that like people do kind of come and go poverty it kind of breeds a very transitory kind of life. people come and go because of jobs they come and go because of like divorces they come and go because of prison and jail you know, yep. so I've, I've had people kind of come and go out of my own life be for similar reasons. And sometimes I know why, sometimes I don't. And and even if it wasn't something that happened to me personally, it's a story that I've heard enough. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. I don't even get into like addiction and all that stuff, which I glossed yeah. over. But, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people do abandon you. And it's not always 
Uh, it's not always malicious, but sometimes it is. And he's kind of gone through his like whole life. Now he's like at 26, ha- having spent the last decade trying to, to stay off the streets, doing whatever he needs to, to survive, uh, to his own detriment sometimes. And, and now he has this friendship, you know, he had, you know, he has, his, his previous best friend, you know, Marcy, who, who's in this book and it appears in some of the other books as well, like took him in when he was like 16. So like, it's fine. <laughs> you know, he does have other yeah. friends and people who love him. Like he's not totally alone, but in terms of like any sort of like stable, honest, open relationship that could be like more than friendship, like it's, it's like slim picking. So he's used to kind of being alone and his biggest fear is being abandoned. And so with Cash kind of just showing up, kind of ruining his life, whatever, but then taking him under his wing and pulling him out of that that kind of like pit into this like economically shaky kind of socially reclusive, <laughs> you know, job. But yeah. you know, it, it, it does mean like a lot. It does help him out of that situation. And it is very clear that like, and, and it's something that Cash kind of has to deal with in, in this book and then like later books is that like, yeah, he does, yeah, his his role in the world is pretty like far down the ladder. Like he's not doing great in the scheme of things, but he still has way more mobility than Dorian does. And Dorian is always going to be like kind of uh, relying on him to move through the human world no matter what. Yeah. So that, yeah. that, is, a te- that yeah. is a tension and that is kind of a that does kind of come and go throughout the series because it, it's you can't it is an elephant in the room you know you can't not deal with that sort of thing but on the other hand like cash's whole thing is that you know he's lived this very um kind of like empty like life as a hunter you know they have this very cloistered conservative family comes before everything like life and everything you do is for the betterment of the group and you know, your job is to kill monsters and make more make more baby hunters to pass on the mantle to. And then it doesn't really afford him a lot of opportunity for relationships because they can't they don't deal with outsiders. They only deal with like other hunting families. So marriages are kind of like arranged, essentially, like you don't get a lot of options and whatever, like, fi- uh, whatever hunting family that your family is aligned with, you will most likely end up with one of those 12 kids. He comes from a pretty big hunting family, um, which we get way more into in, in, like, the second and, like, third books. And he can't really talk to outsiders. He can't really have conversations. He's He was homeschooled. And his job is hunting and killing things. That's all he was ever taught to do a- a- as a kid. And so he doesn't really have hobbies that he can talk to people about. He can't really talk to his job, talk to people about his work because that involves getting into like, Oh yeah. Hey, so you know how werewolves are real. Anyway, that's how, that's why my face is all messed up because I kind of got hit. It's like, there's no way you can talk about your job, <laughs> you know? So when he does try to have uh, cause you know, in this book, he does, he is in sort of like this on again, off again situation with an ex-boyfriend named Max. Um, it's like, he has to lie and he has to like, and it's a very like empty kind of line where he just kind of like pretends that he has his normal life with like a normal family, but like, and he has like, he works some like blue collar job or whatever, but it's just like, he can never be honest about himself. And it's an intensely lonely life. You know, he wants more for himself and what he wants is ultimately like a very normal, like he just wants like to get married and have kids and have a little life. That's what he wants, but that's really not possible where he is. And Dorian is the only, like, 
real friend that he's ever made outside of like the hunting world and all the people that he knew growing up that like just kind of you end up becoming friends with the family friends and then that's it, you know? So that's like his first real adult relationship in a lot of ways. And, you know, he does kind yeah. of put Dorian on a pedestal and they, they work on that. You know, they kind of put each other on pedestals, you know, because, you know, Cash is like Dorian's path to like freedom, but then like Dorian is Cash's only like real human companion and, and friend. It is a little shaky in the beginning because like they do represent so much for each other, but they also, that's why it's so hard for them to commit to an actual relationship because they have so little going in. And each mm. one of them represents so much that um, it, it is kind of slow burn because it's them like trying to figure out like I have so many like intense feelings for this person, but we can't do this, you know, because Dorian's whole thing in the whole book, the whole like first two thirds, I think, is just like, we can't do this. Yes, I have these feelings for you, but we can't do it. We'll never do it. It's not going to work. And Cash not really understanding why it's not going to work because Dorian has never explained why it's not going to work. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know. One is like intensely into pursuing this. One just keeps pulling back. And the fear is that if they commit to a romantic relationship, then they sacrifice the friendship. And the friendship means so much that they're kind of willing to be unhappy, like in a friendship, <laughs> if it means never pursuing that, ro- that romance. It's this very like weird <laughs> tug of war between like, yes, they it is absolutely a friendship built on, trust and respect and love for one another understanding how important the other one is and wanting to keep them happy and not wanting to threaten that happiness with your own feelings but then also shutting yourself off (laughs) from any potential happiness yeah process so (laughs) yeah so it, it does have like it does have a sketchy foundation they do work through it and the rest of the series is them working you know, working through things and that relationship maturing and developing from, you know, I'm in love with my best friend and I have to act on it right now versus like a mature adult relationship and companionship between people who, you know, make reasonable choices <laughs> for the benefit of each other, you know. Oh, and the, pining. The, the pining. pining. Yes, the yes. pining. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and, and it was important to me to kind of like to make sure that that that, yeah, it is a flawed relationship and they were working on it. But yeah, it was really important to me to like start off with that foundation that that it is love, trust, and respect. That is where we're starting from. And it is built out of friendship. I did want to like give them stuff to work on through the series and they have a lot of problems. <laughs> but it's all internal stuff that they work on together and they talk through together and you know, it because it is a romance at the end of the day. And, you know, to your point about it being like a very healthy and like positive relationship, like kind of like my working ethos for the series is that this is a very dark, bleak world. You know, they have very yeah. dangerous, stupid jobs and there's no way out. You know, like it's bad. It's bad times. But like I want I always really wanted them to be this very like bright, warm like place in that universe such that like even if the world itself is not hopeful and mostly it's just them like navigating that dealing with that making the best decisions that they can with the information that they have but like they will always have each other 
and it will be a happy ending for them even if the world carries on being crap <laughs> that's like the hopeful gothic kind of thing which i love like it's mm-hmm. it doesn't have to have that tragic ending it doesn't have to be a tragic you know you don't have to sort of rip people's hearts out with going and mm-hmm. one of them has now died <laughs> like you know yeah. or they can no longer be together because of angst and you know like i quite like that that you've got this sort of core developing hopeful center to the novels that's just it's like that the heart of them and I think that's really lovely especially as you've got like this the sort of the decaying settings and the social deprivation and the you know a lot of people getting their hearts ripped out and blood all over the walls and like (laughs) quite literally yeah 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 yeah. um and I quite like that I quite like there being this central like you know domestic kind of relationship um and I think like it would with the backgrounds that both of those characters have which are very kind of dark and explore very typically kind of gothic themes particularly in Dorian's case and the abandonment issues that he has like I find that very relatable and I think it wouldn't work as well you know if it was just a very quick um, it wouldn't be it wouldn't work if it was a very quick romance and it was a happy ever after kind of thing I think I think you're right. I think it wouldn't work in a different genre. You, do you know what I mean? Because like it, you'd have you 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 need the space to explore all that darkness and that difficulty and the grappling. Otherwise, it doesn't actually work as a character mm-hmm. dynamic, right? It's not a believable development. Yeah, and that, that's something that like I, I've waffled a lot in like how dark i want the world itself to be and in the exact kinds of things like in their backstories that they have to deal with you know and yeah i don't yeah i I definitely agree that like i don't think that this would work if it was just like a like a light happy romance that just happens to be in this sort of like dark space like they they really have to you know like sometimes those stories are fun if it's like like a brisk little like horror subversion or whatever you know like a little dark rom-com like those things are fun yeah Um, definitely but but like (laughs) yeah but I I definitely wanted to like sit with this and not because yeah I mean theoretically we could end it with I could have ended it with with book one and like yeah they live happily ever after but like there's just so many unanswered questions you know and those are the questions that like really really drive the rest of the story and how they engage with the world because you know as we go through the rest of the novels like we get to see more of like how vampire culture works and like from like the 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 weird intricacies of like the vampire mob and like the vamp- uh, some of like the stuff with like the vampire like monarchy and how those two power structures uh fight for domination and where that's left vampires and like and how those power circles have affected the lives of hunters who are their whole like business model and culture is hinges on what monsters are doing and what monsters are doing to each other you know and so you have these like driving like socio-political factors basically you know that that shape how the characters got to where they were in when the story first you know begins with this you know with this novel and everything and then how those factors play out and then as Dorian goes back and learns more about his place in the world and his family and how that family dissolves in everything, you know, um, the, like those are the things that like really drive the plot, but their relationship is still the main focus. Yes. It will end happily ever after. It's just going to be 
just going to be a trip to get there. So <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. And um, uh, on that note, um, is there anything that you'd like to promote that's coming up um, and any projects that you're currently got going on that you want to promote right now or that um, any upcoming releases? Um, I just put out some uh, a, a novella in September um, which is a sort of sapphic Medusa reimagining. That's on my um, TBR, actually. Yeah, yeah I've got that lined up. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. In yes. The of, yeah, in the bedroom of Medusa, sort of like my weird, again, very class-oriented sort of like exploration of of like the Gorgon story and the idea of like Medusa as a character in history and how her story has been told, how people see her, how she sees herself and basically just like the terror of being seen, you know, by, by your lover and all that stuff. So that's, that's, that's just came out. I had another short story come out in October, which is a gay polyamorous werewolf pack short story called (laughs) uh, found among wolves, which is about, a man who has this relationship with a wolf pack, essentially um, his sort of like monstrous desires sort of like put him at odds with, with the men that he tries to date. And he sort of stumbles into this relationship with a bunch of wolves and has to navigate that the rest of 2021 into 2022, I will be working diligently on the leather and lace sequel, which is called black diamond. Um, I, hoping against hope to have that out late uh 2022 or early 2023 um that's going to be the direct sequel to leather and lace um picks up just like a couple months after that um involves murderous vampire cults uh angry monster hunting in-laws uh the occasional killer mermaid and uh doreen feeling his feelings and uh, slowly adjusting to this like domestic life that he's now in <laughs> and all of the things that that entails for someone who like tends to run from their problems rather than dealing with it. So that's going to be really interesting. And then at some point next year, I want to put out a anthology of uh, monster romance short stories dealing with um, like ghosts, demons, um, some more Greek myth stuff like the Minotaur uh vampires werewolves potentially ghouls um just sort of like a a big grab bag of 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 different like archetypes and ideas and you know monsters and the people who love them so that's pretty much everything that i have out or coming out soon um to keep up with me you can always uh subscribe to my newsletter which is uh, at which may move to button down, but for now is a uh, makingcubed.substack.com. Um, and my website is makingcubed.net. I try to have, you know, all the new releases lined up there. Um, or you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter as makingcubed. So I always, always, always obsessively promote my work and you will never be left out of the loop, I promise, <laughs> for all the stuff that I have coming. Uh, upcoming in the next year so yay i'm really excited i think that yeah i really like all of the i I love medusa as well so i'm really looking forward to reading that one um yeah so that's all we've got time for um thank you again megan for coming on the show it's been really lovely to have you 
And uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. <laughs> I love it. I just love it when I can just ask a question and like people will just like talk about their stuff and I don't have to do anything. It's great. And it's such an interesting, yeah, it's such an interesting thing as well to listen to. So thank you very much. So bye now. Thank you.